No European government wanted Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February 24th, but it is fair to say that no European government wanted it less than Germany's. It wasn't just that Germany's current government had only been sworn in 78 days earlier. It is that, for obvious enough reasons, any post-World War II German government has a visceral horror of situations which might compel Germany to participate, even indirectly, in a European conflict. This week, Germany's anguish at the prospect of being, and being seen as, a military power was on display once again. Defence Minister Christine Lambrecht resigned and Germany found itself criticised for its apparent reluctance, as of this recording, to supply Ukraine with the German-made Leopard 2 tank or relax Germany's export licence sufficiently to permit other, more willing Leopard 2 operators like Poland and Finland to give Ukraine theirs. It is not like Germany is not helping Ukraine. Since last February, Germany's military assistance to Ukraine has been outstripped only by the United States, the United Kingdom and Poland. And earlier this month, Germany promised to swell it further to the tune of a Patriot air defence missile system and as many as 40 Marder infantry fighting vehicles. But something about the spectacle of German tanks heading east to fight Russians, even if it won't be Germans driving them, still seems to stir an amount of squeamishness. Is it time Germany got over itself? Is the rest of Europe really ready for that? And how self-indulgent does this dithering look to Ukrainians? This is The Foreign Desk. Germany invaded Russia. An awful lot of Russians died at the hands of Germans. And the idea of a confrontation between Germany and Russia again is anathema to an awful lot of Germans. And I think that countries like France or the Netherlands or indeed Britain would all feel quite uncomfortable with a really efficient German military machine. The most difficult part in watching all of this is that every day of a delay causes into lives being lost on the front line. While the West decides on semantics, I can't believe that a year into the war we're still deciding whether it's a war, whether it's the righteous war, whether it's right to support Ukraine or not. We're nothing but defending ourselves and our lives. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined, first of all, by Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow with the Europe Programme at Chatham House and former Chief Germany Correspondent for the Financial Times. Quentin, as of this recording, Germany is continuing to equivocate and fuss and dither resending Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, and we will come to that later in the show. But let's start with Christine Lambrecht, the now former Defence Minister. Why did she have to go? I think basically because she was not up to the job, but it's a nightmare job and she really hadn't got on top of it. In the end, a disastrous New Year's video that she made, which was worse for the sheer incompetence of it, you couldn't actually hear what she was saying, than for the fact that she was really talking about a horrible war in Ukraine with fireworks going off in the back as if everybody was celebrating. This does seem like fairly basic image management. Yes, indeed, and I fear that it's another example of the fact that I think that she was just basically out of her depth, but in a job that actually has been a graveyard for almost everybody who's ever served in it. There are 
are a number of metaphors or similes for the post of German Defence Minister, which we will come to shortly. But in her specific case, impossible though the job always is, how much of her failure at it was to do with Germany's wider failing to entirely get to grips with the Ukraine crisis or Germany's fairly transparent wish that the whole thing just wasn't happening? I think a lot to do with that. The thing was that Christina Lambrecht came from the left wing of the Social Democrats. So perhaps almost instinctively, she wasn't really very enthusiastic about the whole effort to beef up the Bundeswehr and make the German military into a much more efficient machine than it has been for years. Her part of the party wasn't going to be enthusiastic if she became a warmongering, tub-thumping defence minister. Having said that, she did a certain amount of reform, but I think the party wasn't with her. The Social Democrats, above all, have been very divided about how hard to fight Russia in Ukraine, how much to take on Russia directly. And it all comes down to this terribly fraught question of does Germany send its excellent Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine Mm -hmm. or would that suddenly make Germany, if you like, an aggressor against Russia and invite a serious worsening of the situation in Ukraine. In accepting her resignation, and it's not clear yet to the degree to which her resignation was offered or asked for, but clearly Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, did want to make a change and has made a change. Do you think that indicates that Scholz has apprehended nearly a year into this thing that Germany really does have to pick a side? I think he's still trying to have it both ways. I think he's proving to be remarkably indecisive about the whole thing. He's an operator, and he always has been, so he brings together different views, but he doesn't seem to be somebody who will actually lay down a clear line, and I think that's been the problem, that he reflects Germany's own ambiguity about Mm. this war. The country is very split. I mean, you look even now at the opinion polls about whether to send tanks to Ukraine... And you'll see that the SPD is split, the Christian Democrats are split, the government is split. And the surprising thing is that the hardest line on this seem to be the traditionally pacifist Greens, who are much more pro-Ukrainian than anybody else. Do you get the sense, though, that German public opinion has shifted or that support for Ukraine among the German public has receded? Because one of the extraordinary domestic political upheavals prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February was this apparently enormous change in attitudes in Germany to the idea of Russia and to the idea of Germany as a military power. Germany did announce a big hike in defence spending, and at the time, that was actually according to opinion polls at least, extremely popular. Indeed, and I certainly would admit that I thought that was a really fundamental move. I mean, it was Schultz called it a Zeitenwender, mm. a sort of change of era almost in German attitude to defence spending. But having said that, there is 100 billion euros sitting there in a very substantial fund and Frau Lamprecht had simply not got on with spending the money and actually using it to upgrade the military. 
So the decision was taken, but the actions had not really happened. And I think that reflects what we're talking about, this ambiguity in German attitude. So what do we know of her replacement, Boris Pistorius? He's a pretty tough cookie. He's been 10 years interior minister in the Lund of Lower Saxony, mm-hmm. which is a very important German Lund, and it's a very difficult job to do. It requires liaising with the security forces, dealing with the police. It's a very big department. Now, the nightmare he's got ahead of him in the defence ministry is one of the biggest and worst bureaucracies in Germany. They are totally tied up in their own red tape. I mean, they have the most horrendous procurement system where any item that costs more than 5,000 euros has to go out to tender. So he's got to deal with a huge administrative bureaucracy. One of his qualifications for the job, which Schultz spelt out in hiring him, is this man can manage administration. So that That much, we believe, is true. Now, has he actually got the, if you like, the vision and the decisiveness to get over this German anxiety about defence, this German unhappiness with having a strong military? I don't know. I don't think we know him yet. He doesn't have any international or foreign policy experience. So what does he need to do first? I mean, you've partially answered that, but obviously unpicking a bureaucracy the size of, well, any Ministry of Defence, never mind Germany's, is not something he's going to knock over in his first week. He's got to face up to this decision on the Leopard 2 tanks, basically. This is divine. Dividing the government, it's dividing NATO. There's huge pressure on Germany to do it, even if it only goes so far as to say Germany lifting its veto on Mm. Poland and Finland actually exporting these tanks to Ukraine. That, I think, is the first decision they will have to take, even if they hold back on sending actually German tanks. We were saying earlier that the job of Defence Minister is legendarily one of the toughest in European politics. It has attracted a variety of epithets, some of which you discussed. We talked about graveyards and tombstones. It's also referred to as a revolving door. It's most commonly described, though, as the ejector seat of German politics. But basically, why is that? Well, I think it's been seen as somewhere where a ruthless... Chancellor might put a rival and actually sort of destroy them. (laughs) The only person who really flourished in the ministry is probably Helmut Schmidt, who then eventually became Chancellor. But why is it so hard in particular to be Germany's defence minister? Because I think there is guilt and anxiety about Germany being too militaristic. Second World War, First World War, go back to Prussia. There is guilt about all of that. There's also the very particular relationship between Germany and Russia. Germany invaded Russia. An awful lot of Russians died at the hands of Germans. And the idea of a confrontation between Germany and Russia, again, is anathema to an awful lot of Germans. And I think that countries like France or the Netherlands, or indeed Britain, would all feel quite uncomfortable with a really efficient German military machine. So we've been quite comfortable these past decades at seeing Germany not be the big deliverer. And I don't know that we really want that in our hearts to change. Quentin Peel, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. (laughs) 
Since 1945, the foreign policy of Germany, and West Germany before it, has been guided by a mortal horror of being seen to resemble even slightly Germany prior to 1945. But at what point does a commendable moral reckoning become irresponsible self-indulgence? I'm joined now by Susan Neiman, a Berlin-based philosopher and author of Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. Susan, first of all, there is, of course, a wonderful polysyllabic German word for the process they went through of reckoning with what had occurred during World War II. I'm going to leave it to you to pronounce it. But that process didn't begin, as your book notes, until some years after World War II. So is it possible to identify when the denial stopped, and why the denial stopped? No, and you'll be pleased or or dismayed to know that there's several polysyllabic German words (laughs) for Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. That's the one I used, and they're hotly contested. I would say that the first time there was an official German recognition of the fact that Germans were not the victims of the war, but its perpetrators the first West German acknowledgement of that fact was on May 8th, 1985, when the then president, Richard von Weizsäcker, made a speech on the 40th anniversary of the end of the war that for most people outside Germany would be rather banal, simply pointing out that yes, the Germans had suffered a great deal during the war, which was a litany, West Germany at least, was mostly involved in but actually other people suffered more and their suffering was our fault. Now, this particular bit of wisdom, the very fact, if you go over the speech, and it's a very famous speech, the very fact that it caused a stir says a lot about German denial up to that point in time. But one president's speech, of course, doesn't change everything. And he only said it because for a couple of decades, People had been working to force a kind of reckoning with the Nazis' historical crimes. Those were intellectuals, those were church groups, artists who had been in grassroots situations arguing against this wall of denial, which was kind of, well, war is terrible and everybody does terrible things in war and let's forget all about it. But one has to note that East Germany was very different. East Mm. Germany was founded by anti-fascists who had spent the war either in concentration camps, fighting in Spain, or they were in exile. So they were genuine anti-fascists, unlike the West German government, which was full of old Nazis. Uh, This is not a controversial claim, by the way. There is a historical debate about whether East Germany's anti-fascism was simply instrumentalized against the West or whether it was genuine. I wrote 50 pages of a chapter in my book on exactly that question. I interviewed many, many people, and I had that chapter in particular fact-checked by three historians of contemporary Germany because I knew that would be a controversial claim. So East Germany did a better job initially, even though, of course, they also instrumentalized their anti-fascism. West Germany didn't officially come round, you know, until much later. One interesting example 
is Willy Brandt, who, of course, himself was in exile mm. during the war as a social democrat, not as a Jew. But, of course, the Nazis were equally interested in killing or disabling communists and social democrats as they were Jews. The fact that he had gone into exile in Norway was used against him by Konrad Adenauer in campaigns for the chancellery, which is very telling. He did finally get elected. There was that very famous picture of him kneeling in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial, which did make people think that all of Germany felt that sense of atonement and sorrow. But in fact, it was an isolated gesture. Most of Germany was against it. And Brandt was out of office very quickly. So really not till the end of the 80s do you begin to get the sense that Germany as a whole puts its historical crimes in the centre of its historical narrative. Which, of course, arrives just in time for the reunification of the country. But there is a conventional wisdom at large now, you'll be aware, and to bring the conversation around to this week's topic, that part of Germany's hesitancy with things like sending tanks to the east to fight the Russians is born of a certain squeamishness about the country it once was and quite rightly seeks not to become again. Do you think there is anything to that? I think there's an enormous amount to it. And I'm glad if that's become a popular perception, because initially when Russia attacked Ukraine, there was a perception that Germany was unwilling to be involved because some Germans had made money off of Russian trade or that they were simply scared of a nuclear war, which of course plays a certain role. I actually just came from an appointment with someone in the foreign ministry when I was arguing that while I respect Germany's reckoning with its past, I think both regarding Russia, but also regarding Israel, its policy has been governed by guilt for the past rather than looking at the present. So I very much agree that it's a problem. Do you think then it's fair to say that at this point, Germany is kind of hiding behind this as an excuse not to fully embrace the leadership role that it really should assume where Europe is concerned? You know, this is a question of should assume, who should assume it. Look, Germany is terribly afraid of assuming a leadership role. And I must say that even on the uh, some occasions when it has, there's a lot of backlash from other countries about what are the Germans telling us what to do already? You know, one does hear that or see pictures of Angela Merkel with a Hitler mustache. I am not a great defender of Angela Merkel, but I must say that every time Germany does take a step forward, other European nations are fairly quick to play the Nazi card at them. I have argued for many, many years that Germany needs to take a stronger leadership role in the EU. I would agree with you very much. And I wouldn't say that it's hiding behind its past as a refusal to do it. It's a genuine fear that 
Germany made a mistake some years ago by trying to play a leadership role and fear that other countries will resent it. I mean, I've had many conversations where people said people don't want us telling them what to do, particularly new members of the EU that were occupied perhaps mm. during the war. I mean, most of Europe was occupied during the war, but it's tricky. So I wouldn't say that they're hiding behind it. I would say it plays a role. And that's a kind of Europe-wide problem that needs to be solved. That was Susan Neiman, philosopher and author. Her tremendous book, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, is available now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. It's probably difficult to overstate how uninteresting Ukraine finds Germany's present existential agonising. Speaking this week to a meeting of Western defence ministers which gathered at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, asked for what he called a principled supply of tanks to stop, as he put it, Russian evil. I'm joined finally by Aliona Livko. Aliona is a political consultant and former state MP in Ukraine. Aliona, the way into this episode, obviously, is this row over whether Germany is going to send its leopard tanks to Ukraine or allow other people to send their leopard tanks to Ukraine. But before we get into the politics behind it, as far as Ukraine's government and Ukraine's military is concerned, how big a difference would those tanks make? I think Ukraine is strongly reliant on Leopard 2 tanks, as you've said, not just from Germany, but that would unlock the supply of tanks from many allied countries. So far, we're only looking at Poland and Finland, who are really keen to send those over to Ukraine. But overall, I think there are 14 countries who have Leopard tanks in stock and about 1,200 tanks that are ready to be sent to Ukraine. And that would make a massive turnaround in the war. Because as you know, previously, Ukraine has operated, as well as Russia, on the old T-72 tanks, the Soviet-style ones. And I remember that tank, actually, because I drove past it in my hometown where I grew up in Ukraine because it was like on the monument as a sign of a great victory in the Second World War. So I remember that tank. And now those memories bring back really the realization of how pathetic that weaponry is. And to fight a modern war that we're facing now, we really need something new and modern. And of course, uh, we can see that the whole of Europe and the US is now trying to corroborate that effort and push Germany into sending those tanks just to unlock it. The UK went out of its way and decided to send Challenger 2 tanks, which are not perfect for Ukraine Mm. because it's going to take way more training for Ukrainian soldiers to operate those. And you don't really have the spare parts in Ukraine, so fixing them will also take another amount of effort. And the same goes for the US tanks. The Abrams, I know that Germany is now raising questions saying that, well, we'll follow your lead, United States, if you send your Abrams. But those are a completely different set of weaponry because they've got, as far as I know, I'm not an expert in tanks, but they've got the jet engines and they're very difficult and expensive to operate in terms of fuel and logistics. So really, the Leopards are crucial for Ukraine. When Ukrainians watch Europe bickering amongst itself about how it's going to help Ukraine and whether it's going to help Ukraine and whether or not in this particular instance it's going to supply Ukraine with these specific weapons, how nervous do you get? We're approaching a year of the latest phase of this war now anyway since Russia attacked on February 24th and there has always been that concern that at some point 
everybody would start trying to find a way to edge out of this. Is this a difficult thing to watch and listen to speaking as a Ukrainian? The most difficult part in watching all of this is that every day of a delay causes into lives being lost on the front line. And I can even bring my own personal element into this. The year was kind of like a rough start for me because my brother, who's been rotated to the north, as we've previously discussed, he now told me that at the end of the month, he's getting moved to the east, right onto the front line into Bakhmut and the hell that they're going through there. So... (laughs) Effectively, every single Ukrainian on earth really wants these weapons to be sent to Ukraine ASAP to save lives and to extend that line of offense that Russia is now pushing for. Because I think especially after President Zelensky's visit to the U.S. late last year Mm. and the corroborated effort that the West has showcased since then with organizing even um, this Rammstein meeting in Germany, negotiating what weapons could be sent to Ukraine, they were very positive signals that the weapons that will be decided at Rammstein that will be sent after the meeting, they will decide the outcome of the war. So we're all really hopeful for that. But it seems that Russia is also now backing down and they are now preparing for a massive, huge offensive just to get in time before Ukraine receives all those weapons, including the Patriots, including the tanks and all the resupply of ammunition. So we're really cautious of the new offense from Belarus. As we can now see, they're doing the aerial exercises there. They've reinforced Crimea. There are several submarines in the Black Sea, as usual, and warships. So it's quite scary to watch on a daily basis because I think while the West decides on really semantics, and still I can't believe that a year into the war we're still deciding whether it's a war, whether it's the righteous war, whether it's right to support Ukraine or not. We're nothing but defending ourselves and our lives. So yes, I think we need those weapons as soon as we can get them. If we focus that question of Europe's support for Ukraine on the country we're broadcasting from, we did speak a few months ago about how genuinely genuinely jittery a lot of people in Ukraine were at Boris Johnson leaving office here in the United Kingdom. Is there still that amount of concern in Ukraine related to Britain specifically? Do people get the idea that Rishi Sunak is as invested in this as Johnson was? I think people are certainly noticing that perhaps Rishi Sunak is not such a good close friend to President Zelensky as Boris Johnson was. It was very reassuring to see the Prime Minister of the UK come visit Ukraine right after the G20, especially after the horrendous bombing that Ukraine has faced several days before that. So we can see that the support is ongoing. It's reassuring to see that Ben Wallace, with his strategy towards helping Ukraine, is still in place. It's not getting changed in any way. But also some signals, for example, that I'm getting from some friends at Westminster saying that as soon as Rishi Sunak came into power, he's revised the financial package for Ukraine that was allocated towards 2023. Luckily, as far as I know, nothing has been cut or changed. And it only makes sense that the UK wants to sort out its own internal issues before looking outwards. But this is also a war in Europe that will determine the lives of all of us in the UK, in Ukraine, in Europe, around the world. So it's important to have that support by the UK going, because I think even after Brexit, many of the European countries and globally, everyone is looking towards the UK continuing that steadfast support for Ukraine and leading by example.
Just finally, of course, one of the other headlines out of Ukraine this week was the loss of the Interior Minister, Denise Monastirsky, in that helicopter accident. Is it possible to quantify what kind of impact that will have on President Zelensky, on Ukraine's government? And if you could give us a sense of how significant a figure he was. Losing Denis Monastirsky was very sad for Ukrainian tragic. Um, he was the Minister of Internal Affairs who stepped into power after a, a very prominent minister that ruled before him and who outlasted two presidents of Ukraine, Arsen Avakov. And Avakov was the Minister of Interior Affairs when the war started in Ukraine in 2014. And there were so many risks involved internally in Ukraine because you had an influx of of Russians in unidentified uniforms. You have so many weaponry on hands. You effectively had open borders from the east and from the south of the country with no control over them. So it was crucial to maintain that security in the country. And I think they've managed to do that. If you look at the general criminal rates in Ukraine, they have not gone up since the war started. And with many of the IDPs moving around the countries and socially country being quite unstable, I think he's managed to do that brilliantly. And afterwards, people were really started to think in the government who could replace him when the time came. And Denis Monastirsky was someone who came from the background of fighting corruption. He arose from the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. He was part of founding the Anti-Corruption Council in Ukraine and the investigative bureau that would focus specifically on corrupt bureaucrats and politicians. So he's done quite a lot of progress there. He was chairing the similar security committee in the parliament of Ukraine before he stepped into the position as a minister. And as we could have seen since 2021, for almost two years, he's been an extremely effective minister knowing exactly what he's doing, because since the full-scale invasion, of course, sustaining that security of peaceful population not in the war zone under the martial law, it was also a whole nother assignment that he had, and he's done that brilliantly. We obviously have an acting minister in place now who's from the same system, but it is yet to be seen that that process is uninterrupted, and hopefully it wasn't some sort of diversion that had in mind, of course, the stabilizing situation in Ukraine. Because obviously, we don't want to make any speculations. But Ukraine is a war. And uh, the interior minister is one of the crucial figures in helping that country go through the war successfully. Aliona Hlivko, thank you very much for joining us on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.